the dollar is so strong, it might break something. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of October 3rd, 2022. And this week, we want to address the strength in the US dollar. You might be wondering, again? We did an episode on it in April and replayed that episode this summer. This episode is excellent to get an initial understanding of the dollar, how it's measured, and what drives it. But the dollar is continuing to grind higher. And the question has now become, what will the strong dollar break at home or abroad? We might have started to find the answer to that question last week when there was a short-lived crisis, but a crisis nonetheless, in the financing markets in the United Kingdom. Let's start there because there are a lot of questions about it, and it feeds into our discussion about the dollar really nicely. So, Julia, want to give us a lightning round on what happened? Sure. So in short, the UK has basically been losing its war on inflation and households are really suffering from higher costs, energy specifically. So in response, we saw the government enact a few fiscal measures. The first of these was an energy price cap to reduce people's utility bills. And the second were tax cuts. The issue is that the latter had no ostensible sources of funding and the market figured that out pretty quickly. They figured out that the amount of debt the UK will need to issue will exceed demand. So we saw a massive sell-off in the gilt market. That's what investors call United Kingdom's government bonds. And we saw a currency sell-off, especially versus the strong dollar. Okay, so Lauren, you go into the lightning round on what the Bank of England or BOE did in response. It is quite a time to be a central bank or really anywhere in the world. But essentially, in this case, the Bank of England came in to sweep up the damage. The Bank of England is one of the only central banks that has financial stability actually in its mandate. And so it makes a little bit of sense. The bank had been in a quantitative tightening program, though, before this incident, just like the United States Federal Reserve, which is meant to contract liquidity from the system and bring inflation down. But given that bonds were selling off in a disorderly way, the bank had to reverse course and become the buyer. They literally did an about face in policy last week. It's on an emergency and temporary basis to stop the sell-off and outflows of the Great British Pound or GBP, but still quite an action. And did that work, Lauren? It did work, at least for now, but things aren't fully back to normal. The UK 10-year government bond yield seems to have topped out at about 4.5%, and the Great British Pound, or GBP, seems to be bottoming against the dollar, or perhaps already have bottomed against the dollar. But the biggest short-term win for the Bank of England in this case is that they avoided, at least for now, a solvency crisis in their pension funds. Yeah, so obviously that's good news. But a lot of our listeners are probably wondering at this stage why this made such big news in the US, why we're talking about it today. And if you missed it last week, why US equity and bonds reacted to all of this. It might seem silly that what happens in England could affect US asset prices. Usually we think about it as the other way around. 
But in this case, for some reason, the market decided to take the Bank of England's emergency use of quantitative easing to signal that the Fed might need to also get more dovish in its policy. And frankly, I think that some reason might be that markets are hoping for any reason why the Fed might become more dovish in light of recent more hawkish changes. But the U.S.'s ability to finance its debt is in a different universe from the U.K., part of the what's called exorbitant privilege of being the premier world reserve currency. Yes. So in sum, what happened in the UK last week doesn't necessarily teach a lesson for the US in this case. A big lesson that I did learn here, though, is how quickly any crisis of confidence in policy, so in this case, UK fiscal policy, can spill over in a contracting liquidity environment. That's exactly right. And now we can bring our conversation back to being more centered around the U.S. dollar because the U.K. is only one interesting story from the last couple of weeks of how the dollar is impacting global currencies. Japan and China and other countries have also had to make moves to defend their currencies. In China, this meant simple trading restrictions, but Japan spent 20.9, that's 20.9 billion dollars worth in two weeks just to prop up the yen. Yes, the Bank of Japan was literally asking for it, in my opinion, because they've intentionally devalued their currency only to start defending it in the past few weeks. But that's a whole separate episode. <laughs> that's right. So we have lots of inflows into the dollar, which means there have to be outflows from other currencies and other central banks are making moves to help defend their currencies against those outflows. What does that mean? What's going on? All right, here's where we get to introduce a really fun framework, the dollar smile. Listeners, if this sounds unfamiliar, don't let that phase you. It's not an academic framework per se. It's just a fun way, an interesting way to visualize some of the impacts that the dollar has on the global economy and vice versa. So guide us through it, Julia. All right. I used to use this a lot when I was on the emerging markets side. And the dollar smile basically posits that the dollar is primarily driven by two things global growth, and liquidity dynamics. When liquidity is contracting, like today with central banks hiking and tightening their balance sheets like the Fed, the dollar tends to strengthen. And this can be for one of at least two reasons. One is that the world goes into recession, so investors flock to the perceived safe haven of dollar assets. Or it could be because the U.S. is outperforming amid growth pressures. So again, dollars or money, global money flocks into dollars. So per the SMILE framework, imagine a U-shape with two points at the top marking tight liquidity conditions and the two growth scenarios where the dollar is strong. And at the bottom of the U or the SMILE shape, when liquidity is plentiful, central banks have loose monetary policy, everything is sunshine and rainbows for global growth, and the dollar tends to weaken comparatively because the investor attitude is risk on and that favors international and cyclical and risk assets. So tying that back to the current environment, we have hawkish Fed tightening policy, we have global growth slowing, but there are also organic growth pressures from the likes of Europe and China. So I'd argue that it remains to be seen which side of the U we're on, but we know we're in the strong dollar and tight liquidity portion. So on one of the smiles, not in the middle where the dollar tends to calm. So it's just a question now of whether the U.S. outperforms other major economies or whether we see a widespread recession and flight to the perceived safety of the U.S. Exactly. So taking just a brief pause, under this framework, it's 
really hard to imagine that this strong dollar paradigm of recent months ends anytime soon. The Fed is still hawkish, one of the most hawkish central banks out there, and money tends to flow to the economy with the relative highest interest rate. So it would take a lot of action across the world, different growth regimes, economic growth regimes, to see a reversal or even a pause in this dollar trend. I have to agree, Lauren. And some of that argument is because of just a lack of alternatives. Europe and Japan are not providing good alternatives to the dollar and to dollar assets right now. What's probably closest on the horizon in terms of a pausing reversal of this trend would be the end of the Fed's hiking cycle. After that, Europe might be able to close the interest rate differential a bit, but that's also really dependent on Europe's own growth cycle. That's right. And because you mentioned growth, another thing that could contribute to the dollar weakening is if global growth expectations bottom, then from that bottom, growth could become more synchronized in the recovery. And then we tend to move down that little smile image towards the weaker dollar environment. All right. So we have the why of all of this, why the dollar is so strong right now. Now let's get into why it matters. The most obvious impact probably is to international assets because of the currency impact. And we're going to get to that in a little bit in the portfolio pause. The more obscure impact is actually to the U.S. economy, namely the idea that a strong dollar could slow economic activity. There's this macroeconomic impact where, yes, our imports become cheaper for those in the U.S. when our currency is stronger. But as we've gone over in this podcast, the main driver of inflation right now in the U.S. is not necessarily the things that we're importing, but rather services, rents. So cheaper imports don't necessarily help as much on aggregate. The strong dollar certainly does make our exports less competitive. It makes them more expensive abroad, and that can weigh on the calculation of GDP. And it's also worth mentioning, though, Lauren, that this is in line with the Fed's goals right now. The Fed's goal is to slow the economy. So the strong dollar potentially slowing GDP in some ways doesn't work against those goals. That's right. And on the private sector side, the corporate side, multinational foreign earnings suffer when the dollar is strong. A big mitigant to that risk, though, is that big companies can and do hedge their foreign exchange exposures through their revenues or the currency effect offsets when those companies manufacture more cheaply abroad. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And given that we're not expecting a reversal of the strong dollar anytime soon, we need to think about how it affects our investment allocation. So let's go right to the heart of it, how the dollar affects international investments. Let's start with the fundamental economic impact. There's some talk about the U.S. exporting recession because when a country's currency is weaker, their imports become more expensive. The U.S. is definitely exporting inflation in that way. But when households can't cope and there isn't a fiscal backstop to help those households deal with this, we could indeed be exporting recession. That's the economic fundamental side of the story. And then when we bring that pretty smile framework back to help us think about risk appetite, Strong dollar environments are usually associated with risk-off attitudes, whereas loose liquidity, plentiful growth, and risk-on appetite often favor international assets. So emerging markets in particular are a risk asset that's quite dependent on those global forces. 
So how this comes down to positioning, as we mentioned last week, we are underway international developed equities, so Europe and Japan, and we're roughly neutral emerging markets in our own portfolios. For those that want the diversification benefit of going global, because it absolutely does provide some business cycle diversification, different commodity exposure, et cetera, a hedged or partially hedged strategy could be appropriate to offset currency pressure. Coming up next, we have midterm elections coming up next month in the United States. So we'll be starting our coverage of what the elections mean for the markets and what policies might matter the most. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week with more Market Matters. In the meantime, if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Julia Herman. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nye Life Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nye Life Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.